Friends, I hope you will take some time this week to reflect on the song we have just sung and the question we have just repeated over and over through that song. Where shall you be? Where shall I be on that day? In our world, every society has to fight the reality of corruption. There are forces in our society that bring about decay and evil practice simply by doing nothing. Simply by letting things go their so-called natural way. Governments have to come up with institutions or organizations that fight against corruption. Why? Because if there's no such organization or such entity, the natural direction that societies go is to to move towards corruption. Whether it's in politics or in economics or institutions that have power. You may have heard phrases like money corrupts or power corrupts. The Bible has much to say about this topic, but it actually gives and provides a deeper diagnostic uh, about the source of corruption. The Bible's assessment about the corruption that we see around us, the source of it, is that it actually is sin. In our world, sin is the factor that corrupts everything. And this morning, we get to read about the tragic story of how the corruption of sin affected even King David. Would you open God's Word to 2 Samuel chapter 11? I'll be reading from verse... One, all the way to the end of the chapter, verse 27. 2 Samuel 11, we get to read about the story of David and Bathsheba. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel... And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her home, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah. And Joab sent Uriah to David. Then Uriah came to him. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house, and there followed him a present from the king. 
But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also and tomorrow, and I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning... David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter, he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him, that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab and some of the servants of David among the people, fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting, and he instructed the messenger, when you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, then if the, king, if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, why did you go so near the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot, they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubesheth, did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Joab had sent to him to tell him. The messengers said to David, the men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah her husband was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us. Would you join me in prayer, asking God to bless the preaching of this word? Father, you're the God who inspired your word you have given us your word. We thank you for this word. Father, we pray that you would speak to our hearts through it. We ask that you would help me preach it and help our hearts hear it and hear your intended message through this passage. We pray that our hearts may be challenged, may be equipped, may be warned, 
Um, Father, we pray that you would accomplish with us through this passage what you have intended uh, from the beginning. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. 2 Samuel 11 is the darkest chapter of 2 Samuel. It's the darkest chapter of the whole book of Samuel, 1 and 1 and 2 Samuel. Some even have considered this chapter to be the second darkest chapter after Genesis 3 in the whole Bible. That's a debatable claim. It's a dark chapter. And we will see why. David's life will never be the same after this moment. His family will not be the same after the events of this chapter. This is not the chapter that the people of God can boast in. It's not a chapter we want to remember or to bookmark in our Bibles. And yet, it is a chapter we must remember and cannot afford to skip the lessons that it teaches. For us today, this chapter is a warning. This is a warning chapter. Let's consider this chapter not for the sake of indicting David, but to receive warning in our own battle with our own sinful nature that we have inherited. So why would we preach this text? Well, first, it's because it's in the Bible. Second, because we're committed to preach expositionally through the Bible. We just take chapter by chapter, work through a book of the Bible. Because God inspired this text to be written for us, and because we're committed to work through uh, the text of Scripture expositionally, we need to heed the warning this chapter gives, even though it's a tragic and dark chapter. What's the warning that this chapter teaches and gives us? And the warning is this, no one is safe from the lures and corruption of sin. No one is safe from the lures and corruption of sin. David's failure is clearly exposed here at the beginning of the chapter. Then we'll see David's cover-up. And finally, we'll see David's uh, excuse. The story, this tragic story, highlights these moments. David's failure, David's cover-up, and then David's excuse. Let's look at, at how this chapter warns us, warns you and me, not to think that we are safe from the lures of sin and corruption, the corruption of sin. David's failures, in, in verses 1 through 5, the, the narrator tells us in a very succinct way, actually, how David committed the sin of, uh, of adultery with Bathsheba. The fact that this chapter is reported in the biblical record by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is a big deal. The Bible does not hide the blemishes of the characters it speaks about, even of the, of the good and great characters of the Bible. And for that same reason, we should not try to pose to others that we're someone different than, than reality. The Bible's openness to present the real person of David with his qualities and with his blemishes should encourage us to a posture of openness and being vulnerable with others 
offering to share with others about our own battles with sin. Just imagine the reality. Not only did David sin and his sin got exposed here, it got to be written in the Bible. Every believer that ever lived that got to read the Old Testament and got to read the story would get to know about the details of David's sin. Wow. Talk about vulnerable. Talk about showing the, the, the real deal. Notice the timing when all this happened. The chapter starts with David remaining home while all Israel was on the battlefield fighting against enemies and It's important to notice, and ravaging them. Look at verse 1. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. David's army was was a big dog in this fight. His soldiers were winning. His commanders were marching through enemy territory and conquering them. Ravaging is, is is a pretty big word. They were greatly successful. This outcome of this war and the full conquest of the Ammonite territory is described at the end of chapter 12. This battle is the context in which the narrator tells us about another battle that David was facing. And he became completely blindsided by it. He was totally unprepared for it. The battle with his own sinful nature, the corruption of his own heart. David was in a season of great conquests, but in this chapter he failed to consider the war going on in his own heart, in his own desires. How sad that people today are so consumed with our worldly successes, but we don't pay much attention to the state of our hearts the state of our souls. Success can easily numb us and and divert our attention from the battles in the heart. Perhaps it was not so much success, but stress, considering, wow, the country is at war. Stress can also numb us and divert our attention from the battles that go on in our own hearts. But don't miss this detail. David's fall happens while David's armies were winning and ravaging the enemy. And notice the unfolding of David's battle with his lustful, sinful nature. While David was at home, walking on his rooftop, he saw one of his neighbors bathing. Instead of averting his eyes and looking elsewhere, he became interested in what he saw. Interested enough to take the next step and find out who this woman was. So, he sent his servants to find out her identity. David learned that her name was Bathsheba. He learned about her family heritage and that she was the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Now, Uriah the Hittite is a no-name man. At the end of the book of 2 Samuel, Uriah is listed in David's list of top strongest soldiers. That meant that Uriah was known a high-ranking soldier in David's army. 
He was a soldier. David knew his army was away at war. Uriah's at home. He was on the battlefield fighting for David. So David took another step, not only finding about the identity of this woman, but inviting her over his house. Now, the fact that David knew who this woman was and still invited her to his home shows that David did not act ignorantly here, but willfully. David didn't merely fall into the sin. David committed the steps towards this sin willfully. David broke two commandments, two of the Ten Commandments that day. First, he, he broke the last commandment. Exodus 20, 17, the Tenth Commandment says, You shall not covet your neighbor's wife. Ah, oh, the power of coveting. Of wanting to get what you don't have and what is not yours to have. The battle with sinful nature, with our own sinful nature, begins on the plain field of our desires. The battle with our sinful nature begins on the plain field of our desires. So just take a moment there. Are you the kind of person who always gives in to what you desire? Do you ever push back against your desires and fight for contentment when you don't get what you want? Coveting is, is giving in to the desire of having what is not yours to have. That day, David did not put up a fight against his desires. He wanted his neighbor's wife. So he invited her to his place and eventually broke another of the Ten Commandments. You shall not commit adultery. Perhaps David and Bathsheba thought that this was a one-time experience that no one would find out about, but they were wrong. Bathsheba conceived a child through that union, and she sent a message to David to inform him, I am pregnant. What would David do now? All of a sudden, their secret affair would not remain secret anymore. Sin always, always has a way of coming out, one way or another, sometimes sooner, sometimes later. And sin always costs more than its advertising price. Sin always costs more than its advertising price. David's failure started when he turned his looks into coveting and took the next steps towards fulfilling and satisfying his sinful desires because he did not realize that he had another battlefield on the home front in his inner, battle, in his inner heart. How sad that we rarely consider our sinful desires to be enemies we must fight against. We rarely think of our inner desires as enemies. Our society tells us that your desires are your identity, that that's who you are, that is your genuine yourself. The Bible tells us otherwise, that our sinful, corrupt desires are actually enemies we must fight against. How easily we fight against other people and rarely we fight against our own desires. Just imagine how that would change our conflicts 
when we have disagreements with one another, if we actually took a posture of fighting first our own desires before we fight the person next to us? Are there inner desires that you are fighting against? Or have you given a blank check to your desires, assuming that you are living your life from a posture where somehow your desires must be fulfilled? David, his failure was to fail to see that his inner desires were actually the battlefield he had to fight on and against. That day, this conquering king failed to fight against his own sinful and corrupt desires. So he sinned. And instead of confessing his sin, instead of pausing to realize, wow, this thing is going to come out, a baby is going to be born, instead of confessing his sin, he does what sinners often do. He tries to cover it up. So, move number two in the story, David not only failed to fight against his sinful desires, uh, move number two, he tries to cover it up. David's cover-up. We see this from verses 6 to 24. David's cover-up plan has three layers to it. Plan A, plan B, and plan C. Plan A is to invite Uriah to come home and spend the night with his wife. This, would, uh, this way no one would suspect that the child to be born would be from Uriah. But when Uriah arrives at Jerusalem from the battlefield, and when he is commanded by the king to go home, Uriah refuses to obey the king's command. And the narrator captures Uriah's reply to David when David asks him, what's wrong with you? You came from the battlefield. Why'd you go home? Uriah's reply in verse 11 Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Uriah's devotion to the Lord, to his ark, to the fellow army colleagues during the time of war is a stark contrast with David's attitude earlier. While Uriah refused to enjoy what rightly belonged to him, David chose to enjoy what was not his to have. And the irony is that Uriah was a Hittite. He was not even a Jew. Here is a non-Jew expressing an incredible devotion to the Lord, to his armies, refusing the king's command. And here's a king who had done the very, very opposite. We get to see who truly is a true Israelite in the story. It's not King David. It's a non-Jewish convert to the people of God. Plan A has failed. 
plan B. If David could not lure Uriah with food and with a free night with his wife, David's B plan was to intoxicate Uriah and to seek to control him by getting him drunk. But Uriah's devotion is so high that even under the influence of wine, he would not go to his home for the night. Plan B failed. When David found out that Uriah's refused a second time, even under the influence of alcohol, David moves to plan C. David determined to have Uriah killed. David's coveting and adultery now turns into breaking a third of the Ten Commandments. You shall not murder. David wrote instructions to the commander of his army, to Joab, to arrange for Uriah's death by the sword of the Ammonites that he was trying to fight. And David had the audacity to send the letter through Uriah's hand. Imagine what kind of trust David must have had in Uriah not to look, not to open up the letter. Imagine the trust David had in Uriah the Hittite. Where is the justice in the story? The trustworthy, the devoted, the loyal man receives a death sentence and his own hand carries the letter? This is evil. Can you see? Can you see how deeply sin has corrupted David? What's even more sad is that David used his authority as king to arrange for the death of his loyal servant. As king, he had the authority to command the commander to execute his commands. How wicked to take the authority God gave him, David, as king for leading and protecting others and to use it now to bring them harm. Oh, friends, in this story of the, the three-layered cover-up, plan A, B, and C, we learn some amazing lessons about the danger of taking up the path of seeking to cover up your sins. Covering up for sin may seem like the best way out of trouble, but in the long run, it gets you deeper into trouble. Covering up for sin pulls you into more sinning. Covering up for sin is not the best way out. It's the best way deeper in. Friends, are there areas in your life right now that you are living, that you're currently seeking to cover up sin? Stop it. Don't fall for the lie that covering up sin is the best way out. It's the best way deeper in. And on top of that, one sin and its cover-up will always cause the next cover-up to be done easier. It will always cause you to be easier to do the next level of sinning. David's failure 
David's cover-up. But there's a third moment in the story. It's not only the the failure and the cover-up, but finally in the last part of the chapter we see David's excuse because the cover-up doesn't work. For the narrator of this text, reporting the outcome of the plan C back to David is a big deal. It receives a big attention. This reporting of plan C gets a spotlight at the end of this chapter because both Joab and David thought that the cover-up worked. So, let's see. In this part, in this final part of the chapter, we see David's mind, we see David's rationale, we see David's excuses. When Joab sends an update to David to tell him about how plan C worked, he prepares the messenger to encounter David's anger. The anger of, uh, of a, the king at the news that soldiers died on the field. But when David hears the news that Uriah also died, David's response is quite surprising. Not only is he not angry, not only is he calm, not only is he not upset, he is seeking to encourage Joab in return. And David's words back to Joab through the messenger reveals what David was thinking through this whole unfolding of plan C. Verse 25, we get to hear David's rationale, David's excuse. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one, now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it and encourage him. David, the encourager. The Hebrew phrase in our ESV Bibles, the phrase that is, is translated, don't let this matter displease you, has a, has a very intriguing uh, verb in the Hebrew language. It's a, it's a verb that is related to the eyes to seeing or perceiving. One Bible teacher interpreted this phrase, don't let this matter displease you, interpreted or translated in this way, don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Don't let this thing that you have just reported about the soldiers dying and Uriah dying, don't let this evil thing be evil Or don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Here David's excuse is seen clearly. He thinks that he can count Uriah's death on the tab of the casualties of war. And this was indeed David's line. For the sword devours now one, now another. Now if you're David, this may seem like a brilliant cover-up. You can argue that, of course, I mean this is... This is normal in in wartime. Who can argue with the reality that on the battlefield, soldiers die killed by the enemy? So David's rationale was, if I can get the enemy to kill Uriah, then I'm off the hook. Brilliant move. In In David's own eyes, 
this matter seemed not evil. So he encouraged Joab to see it the same way. Don't let this thing be evil in your eyes. Friends, do you see how far David has traveled in his mind? Sin is powerful. It corrupts not only our desires, it corrupts our actions, and it corrupts our minds and our eyes so that our reasoning is no longer able to assess what is right and wrong anymore. Our eyes become blinded to the evilness of sin. And we not only hold that for ourselves, but we also try to encourage others to see the same way. The story ends with David marrying Bathsheba. In verse 27, when the morning was over, after Bathsheba found out about the news, when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. It might have seemed to David that David's plan C worked. By the time Bathsheba gave birth to this child, she had become David's wife. The cover-up was successful. Even if it took several layers... And even if it took a little more sinning in the process. But there's another phrase that the narrator includes at the end of verse 27, which we cannot miss. After all, that, all of that is done and said, the narrator includes this phrase, but the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The same verb, the same Hebrew verb, used in verse 25, when David tried to encourage Joab not to let this thing displease him or be evil in his eyes, is now repeated by the narrator to speak about God's eyes. It's as if this last phrase could be translated as, the thing that David had done was evil in God's eyes. Just because God's perspective was not brought in until now, in the story, does not mean that God's eyes were closed to David's actions. I love how one Bible teacher put it beautifully. In this chapter, God may be silent, but he is not sightless. The same thing we need to learn. God may seem to be silent in the way we carry on our business, our plans, but he is not sightless. Just because David did not see this event as evil in his eyes does not mean that he was off the hook. This event, the story that was written for us here, was evil in God's eyes. And the narrator leaves this sentence at the end of chapter 11 as a cliffhanger in the story. Cover-ups and excuses may so-called work in the short run. They may seem rational in our eyes, but they are not right in the eyes of God. They will not satisfy the justice of God. Nothing will escape the eyes of God from seeing our actions and evaluating them justly. That's why we must evaluate everything we do or think or desire according to God's Word, not according to our own eyes. 
This is why in the Bible God told us why we should keep His Word constantly before us. Even in the Old Testament, God gave instructions to, put, to ask the Jews to give themselves reminders, regular reminders of God's laws. In the book of Numbers, in one place, God even said that the Jews should put a, like a, a yarn, a blue yarn, a tessel on the corners of their clothing to remember regularly when they look at their clothing to remember the laws of God. Everywhere they walked, clothed, they would remember, or they were supposed to remember, the commandments of God. And listen to what God said about those tessels. Numbers 15, 39. And it shall be a tessel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. If David had just remembered God's Word that day. Friends, do you tend to trust the rightness of your own eyes? Our heart and our eyes cannot be a reliable source for what is right in the sight of God. That's why we need to keep our eyes on God's Word regularly, daily. Consider reading Scripture regularly throughout the week. Scripture speaks about meditating on God's Word day and night to calibrate your mind with, with who God is. As we read God's Word, moving from the Old Testament to the New Testament, we read a place in the New Testament in the Gospel of Mark that was read earlier in our service, in chapter 7, when Jesus spoke about the corruption of sin, that the corruption of sin is actually lodged in our own very hearts. When Jesus tried to teach the disciples that defilement comes not from what we eat, from external things coming in, but our uncleanliness, our defilement comes from what's already inside of us, Jesus listed a, a list of, of some sins to give an example of the corruption of sin that happens, that comes from within. And Jesus says in chapter 7 of Mark, verse 20, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. From within, out of the heart, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these things, all these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. What's surprising about this list is that Jesus puts in sequential order the three commandments David broke. In sequential order and reverse. Murder, adultery, coveting. It's as if, and I don't know if this was Jesus' intention, it's as if, to my mind, it's as if Jesus is going back and said, this is, this is the backtrack of David's failure. The murder was, came after the adultery. The adultery came after the coveting. Well, friends, where do these come from? Where do they come from in David's own life? How did David get to that place? The answer is from the heart. From the corruption of sin that lodges in every human heart, even in David's heart. 
That's why the, the news of God's salvation that Jesus came to proclaim is that humanity needs not merely a moral improvement, but we need a new birth. We need a change that must happen in us, inside of us, at the level of our hearts. That's why God's call for us to repent of our sins and trust in Jesus, in His Son, is so good news to us. Because as we hear the good news about what Jesus came to do, that His blood cleanses of our sin, that His blood paid for the punishment of our sin, that His resurrection overcame sin and death, this good news of the gospel is also telling us that God is able to create a change at the deepest level of our beings where corruption has affected us. Thus, we must call out to God to save us. When God saves us, it's not merely a decision we make for Jesus. When God saves us, it's not merely getting baptized, although as we saw last week, baptism is an important part of going public in our faith with Jesus. It's not merely these external aspects, but that God actually does a change at the level of the heart because that is where the corruption of sin has done its work. Yet our sinful, corrupt natures remain with us, remain with us as Christians till we die. The, the corrupt nature that we have inherited remains with Christians until the grave. But from the moment we become Christians, this corrupt nature now exists in us no longer as an ally that we want to partner with, but as an enemy that we want to fight against. And that's what makes a big difference between those who are genuine Christians and those who are not. They come to realize that the corrupt nature that has enslaved them and kept them in bondage now becomes an enemy we must fight against. And that's a work of sanctification. That's a work of, of seeking the Lord, growing in being more like Jesus. We're not going to be perfect or sinless on the side of eternity, but we are fighting against our corrupt nature. So as Christians, we are called to be constantly aware of the inner battle of the heart because the corruption of sin does not evaporate when we become Christians. Friends, we have seen in this chapter... David's failure. We have seen David's cover-up. We have seen David's excuse. All of these drive home this point for us and this warning. No one, no one is safe from the lures and corruption of sin. Friends, if someone, if someone like David was able to fall into such evil acts and try to rationalize them and to convince others not to see this as an evil thing. Let this be a warning to all of us about the power of our sinful nature. No education will protect us from the corruption of sin. No giftedness will protect us against the corruption of sin. No past good works will guarantee our safety from the corruption of sin. Don't tell yourself, oh, I'm better than that, or oh, I can do better. This man who stands before us in this chapter 
who failed so tragically is the man who wrote most of the Psalms in the Bible. This is the man whose writings we meditate on often. This man was surrounded by great counselors. This man is the man who killed Goliath and who experienced many times in his life God's hand. This is the man who received amazing blessings from God. This is the man with whom God made an everlasting covenant. If even this man fell so deeply because he acted on the impulses of his corrupt human nature. Let us see how deeply wicked and corrupt this sinful nature is. We have inherited the same corrupt sinful nature. As one Bible teacher put it beautifully, there is in human nature an inherent rottenness that can always come out given the circumstances. There is in human nature an inherent rottenness that can always come out given the circumstances. That's why one of the hymns that we sang today, that we're about to sing today, speaks about this, the need for us to realize that we have in us proneness to wander away. The words of the, of the song, Come Thou Fount, say so beautifully, Oh, to grace, how great a debtor. Daily I'm constrained to be. Not, not once in a while. Not in my youth. Daily I'm constrained as a debtor to this grace. Let thy goodness like a fetter bind my wandering heart to thee. Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. Oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Are you aware of the battle inside you with your own corrupt desires? The battlefield with our corrupt nature starts with our desires. It doesn't matter how successful you are, how right things appear to be in your eyes. What matters is what is right in the eyes of God. And we know that from the Bible. It is only the grace of God that can supply us the power to fight against our corrupt nature, to help our eyes see our corrupt desires as enemies, not allies that need to be supplied. It is only the grace of God that helps our eyes see our desires for what they are, and it's only the grace of God that gives us the power to cling to Christ in the midst of the battle. No one is safe from the lures and corruption of sin. That's why we need to cling to Christ and to His grace daily. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the warning that you have given us in this word, in your word. Help us to take this warning seriously. Help us to take the battle with our own sinful nature seriously. Give us hope when we have failed. Give us a hope that there is forgiveness with you when we confess our sins, when we forsake covering it up, when we forsake excusing it,
There is forgiveness with you when we confess it, when we turn to you. Father, give us your grace daily. Help us to see our dependence on your grace daily. We ask this, Father, in the name of Christ. Amen.